0: Let's take your bible's turn to psalm fifty three psalm fifty three as, as you're turning there, just as um, as an odd little piece of trivia, this is a ver- this is a, a psalm that first appears in psalm fourteen, and it is it is an exact copy. Why would they do that? that's another sermon all right, but that just is an interesting little tidbit. Um, it, is, uh, it is a psalm that is found in, in two places, um, so Psalm 53, th- these, these are the words that, in, for some part of it, uh, Paul draws on to, uh, w- when he lays out his uh, indictment against humanity, especially in Romans chapter 3. Psalm 53, beginning in verse 1, "...the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one." 2007, Pew Research, which is a leading uh, researcher of religious attitudes and beliefs, in particular in the United States, indicated that about 4% of the American population at the time identified as atheist or agnostic. So, So, 2007. So, fast forward a decade later, that number has more than doubled. It is now estimated as much as 10% of the population of the United States identifies as atheist, and if not the the kind of the hardcore committed, there is no God, at least somebody saying, well, there may be a divine being, but in in practicality, there's no such being engaged in the day-to-day affairs of, of the world. Now, the majority of that number are young males, and the majority of them are aligned in some form or another with liberalism, interestingly enough. Seems that the primary source they turn to for guidance in the world is going to be science, practical experience, and common sense. What's interesting, though... As the vast majority of these atheists identify as such, not because science has led them to that conclusion, and not even because their common sense has led them to that conclusion, instead, in most of the research and surveys conducted, finds that the vast majority of people who identify as atheist or agnostic do so because of an internal conflict they have with the notion of a loving God, and they're being evil in the world. In other words, their reasons for not believing in a God turn out not to be scientific, but largely philosophical. Many of them will give personal anecdotes of loved ones dying, child dying of leukemia, a wife in a car accident... Uh, visiting another location where they witnessed atrocities, whatever the case may be, this, this, this is kind of the the, the cauldron in which uh, atheism bubbles. now there, there is no doubt that one of the most difficult conversations you can get into when trying to share the gospel is a conversation with an atheist. And there could be a lot of reasons for that, but one of them being this. Rarely do you come across the incidental atheist. If somebody's willing to identify as an atheist, they're they're looking to debate, alright? They are ready to go round and round and round with you. Of, of all the kind of issues we're dealing with on Sunday nights and how to prepare ourselves to have gospel conversations if we're challenged with this issue or that issue, uh, I, I, would, I would imagine that perhaps the, the most frustrating one may turn out to be this one. Well, what do I do when I encounter an atheist? And this can be challenging because an atheist will get all up in your business. All right? They'll get up in your face. Not that they'll necessarily get ugly, but they for sure will go on the offense. And many of them pride themselves in thinking they can debunk the faith of a believer. So, how do we prepare ourselves for this? Now, uh, well, I, I've got some, I think, a, a couple of ideas here, and, and they're there on your notes. As I noted earlier, I, I haven't given you blanks here. Uh, I thought it would just be more helpful to go ahead and give you the information, and you can fill in, you know, whatever little tidbits you want to put in along the way. But this gives you a little bit more uh, information than what I may normally give you. E- e- even, even if you look at your life and you think, uh oh, I don't know if I even know an atheist, and it's possible some of you don't have a relationship with somebody who identifies this way. Uh, You never know, and my guess is that our encounters with atheism will only increase as a culture becomes increasingly secularized. In other words, the growth from 2007 to now in atheism is not a coincidence, right? Right? In other words, if you, if you lessen exposure in a culture to religious ideas, it's only going to stand to reason then that you're going to have then generations who are raised up largely without any kind of influence of any kind of religion, let alone Christianity. So my guess is over the course of the next several decades, we would only find ourselves seeing an increasing number of atheists. So, it, it would uh, do us well to prepare to engage with an atheist. Uh, I, I don't know if we'll get through all this tonight, because I, I, I want to make sure uh, that we deal carefully with these issues. This, I think, is the most complicated one to deal with. Uh, of all the issues we've discussed, and we've got a couple of more questions that I'll address before we finish out this series, uh, I think this one could be the most difficult. So, what can we do prepare ourselves to communicate the gospel. And I would remind you, again, that is our ultimate task. Our ultimate task is to present a reasonable defense for the faith, right? Our task is not to one-up an atheist. Our task is not to put it to them. Our task is not to convince them, necessarily, of what we believe. We are unable to do that. And and I say that this way to make sure we understand, so what is a successful encounter with an atheist? A successful encounter with an atheist is the same as a successful encounter with anybody. Getting the gospel out. Our task is to bring the Bible to bear on the life of the unbeliever. That that is our task as the evangelist. And we let the Word and the Holy Spirit and God's sovereignty take over, right? That's His work. That's His work. So just keep that in mind, You and we'll walk through some tips uh, tonight and probably then the next time we're together of how we talk with folks, but just, just keep this in mind. We are under no obligation uh, to engage in a back-and-forth debate with the atheist. Instead, our obligation is to share the gospel. So how can we prepare ourselves to do that? Well, I want to I do two things tonight, two things tonight. Uh, that uh, I think can help prepare us to communicate the gospel to an atheist. Number one, I think it's helpful to begin with the biblical portrait of an atheist. It's interesting that this verse, and we just read it, Psalm 53, as I said, there's a, there's a mirror text in Psalm 14. It, it, it is the only time we find this phrase used, that there is somebody who would say, there is No God. And the text is pretty clear, right? I mean, verse 1 of chapter 53 is pretty clear on the biblical portrait of the atheist. What is he described as? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And then notice how it goes on to describe this individual in particular. They are corrupt. They have done abominable iniquity. There's none who does good. Now, it's important as you engage in a conversation with an atheist that you're having this kind of a portrait in mind. You are talking to somebody who is radically and deeply lost. Now, don't let the phrase, they've done abominable things, mislead you. According to the text, one of the abominable things that they do is they deny the existence of God. That is an abominable abominable thing, it it is then a heresy that condemns to hell, alright? Now what I want you to note though is the reference here, that the fool has said in his heart. So the Bible describes the atheist as a fool. Now let me go ahead and add just a little bit of advice here. The Bible describes the atheist as a fool. When you're talking to an atheist, don't say that. All right, I don't know if you know, but that that's probably not going to grease the wheels. All right, uh, unless you just want to get in a good old fashioned fight, then maybe. Okay, but I, you know, understand the atheist you're talking to. I promise you, the atheist knows this verse. I promise you, the atheist knows this verse. Okay, so you don't have to you don't have to repeat it to say, "Well, the Bible says you're just a fool." Okay, all right. However, it is important that you understand what the Bible means when it says this about the atheist. What is a fool? Well, we're not talking about somebody who is unintelligent. It's not what it means. He's not talking about intellectual ability, so to speak. How many of you know who Stephen Hawking is? Does the name sound familiar? All right. Okay. Brilliant astrophysicist who is an atheist, right? Now, it's not been long ago that he died. And at the, right as he died, he still espoused to this. He, he never denied his view of atheism. And in fact, here's exactly what Stephen Hawking believed. He believed science explained everything. Explained everything. That was kind of his life's goal, by the way. To build a theory of everything. I think they even made a movie out of this. To, to build a theory of everything. And he felt like science could answer Everything. And then he was what was called a naturalist. And so he believed that the moment you died, you ceased to exist. Now, interestingly enough, he believes neither of those things anymore. Right? Okay. He believes neither of those things anymore, but to the day that he died, he did. However, there's no doubt Stephen Hawking was a brilliant man. What do you think you and I would do if we had Stephen Hawking up here, wheelchair and everything, computerized voice... And he laid out for us, at the height of his intellect, all of his ideas of astrophysics. Anybody in here keeping up with that? It's above my pay grade, I can tell you that right now. I'm not keeping up with it. Okay, so when the, when the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, the atheist does not, does not lack intelligence. Instead, it's much worse. The Bible using the word fool is using this in a, in a moral sense, in, in, in kind of a moral responsibility sense. In fact, here is what it means, that the fool is one who should know better. The fool is somebody who's not ignorant of the truth. The fool is somebody who knows full well the truth, but rejects it and goes his or her own way. So this is in keeping then with Romans chapter 1. It's not that the atheist doesn't know that God exists. The atheist knows God exists. The atheist knows that. They've just suppressed that truth and unrighteousness. So so it's important to keep in mind, this is how the Bible is depicting then the fool. This is the fool. He knows the truth, but he has suppressed that truth and unrighteousness. It's not that he lacks a certain intelligence... It's just that he is dead in his trespasses and sin. His mind is darkened. He is unable. Now here's where maybe intellect comes into it to a degree. He is unable to comprehend the deep things of God because his mind is broken. Yours is too without the gospel, by the way. So, so, the portrait of the atheist is, is this, and it's an important one to keep in mind. Now, take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26. So, you just have to go, you know, just flip a few pages till you get to the next book. Proverbs 26, we won't read verses 1 through 12, but, but the, the entirety of it talks about the fool. So, we've identified in Psalm 51... But the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Okay, so the atheist is, biblically speaking, aligned with the fool. So, he, so the, the Bible has very specific instruction on how to deal with these folks. So notice what it says, beginning in verse 3. Even though I would not recommend you do verse 3. Okay. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey and a rod for the fool's back. All right? Okay, so understand right away, I, you, <laughs> he's not being literal. Like, he's, like you don't, you're not going after, right, the atheist with a rod. You're not supposed to literally beat him on the back. Instead, he's, it's, it's, a, it's a statement about, you know, the, the judgment he deserves for his stubbornness. But verse, verses 4 and 5 are really what I want to get at. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. How does that sound to you? Contradictory, right? I mean, one verse after the other, he says it's what it sounds like exactly the opposite. Verse 4, he says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Verse 5, he says, answer a fool according to his folly. So, what's he getting at here? I think the proverb is giving us helpful instruction on how we deal with the fool and understand the Bible's described the atheist as the fool. I think verse 4 is describing this Don't answer a fool in a manner that appeals to or yields to his folly. As, As it pertains to the atheist, here's what this means. I'm not arguing on his terms. Uh, we don't have a level playing field here. I'm, I'm not going to sp- not let him set the agenda. The atheist doesn't get to set the agenda for what is evidence, what is proof, what is truth, uh, what is required in order to win the argument. In other words, I, we're, we're not coming at this from the same perspective. I'm not going to answer the atheist in his folly. If the atheist demands... Prove God to me. I'm not obligated to do that. I'm not going to answer him in his folly. I'm not not going to let him set the parameters of the discussion. Otherwise, he'll think we're on a level playing field. And he'll assume he's got ideas and presuppositions that are valid. They are not. No matter what caterwauling he might engage in, when you dare challenge these ideas, we're not coming at it from level ground. I do not answer the fool, and the atheist is a fool, I do not answer him according to his folly, in a, way, in a way that appeals to his worldview. I don't have to come down to his worldview. I don't have to cast my argument in a way that, that meets the criteria of his worldview. I'm not obligated to do this. Because I don't want him to think he's got any kind of uh, head start or advantage here. But I do want to answer him according to his folly in that I want to answer him in such a way that I expose the folly of his worldview and thus offer a rebuke to him. So I'm not going to talk with him in a manner that suggests we're peers here in this discussion, but I am going to challenge the presuppositions and ideas of his worldview Okay, so I will talk to him in a way that is consistent with his folly in order to reveal the inconsistency of his worldview. Now, I know that seems complicated and odd, but I, but I find this particular proverb helpful and a good instruction to us because I think it has unique application to our task tonight. How is it that we have a conversation then... With, with the one the Bible so clearly identifies as a fool. Now, I should say, this principle would apply to any unbeliever, by the way. It's just, you're going to find, when you get into a debate with an atheist, it is a different thing. <clears throat> if you're debating with somebody who believes in God, even if they don't believe in the God of the Bible, you do have a worldview connection, right? At least on a base level. So you both believe in the divine... You would then both, I presume, believe in the supernatural, right? You would believe in some form of afterlife. So, if I'm talking with anybody else but an atheist, there is a bit of common ground, worldview. But because his worldview is so centered on this idea, we we are totally at odds with one another. So, I I don't want to speak to him in any way that suggests, you know, that, that I think his ideas have validity, because I do not. I think they are, at their core, I believe that they are foolish. Alright, so, this is this kind of lays out then the biblical portrait of what it means, uh, I think, to speak to one who denies the existence of God. Now, before we move on to the next section, let me say just a note here um, about what you may encounter if you encounter what are called the new atheists. You may not be aware of this, but they are... So there's like old-school atheists that would go back to the early part of the 20th century. These are, you know, old-school, hardcore atheists that wrote a lot of philosophy about why God didn't exist. They believed it in rather absolute terms. Here's what they're doing now, and it's really tricky, because I had a conversation with a guy, not, not all that long ago, who defined atheism this way. I am an atheist... And that I believe the evidence suggests there is no God. So I don't believe that there is a God. But I'm not saying that that's an absolute truth. Did you catch that? I don't believe there's a God, I'm just not absolutely saying there is no God. Even though he's couching his principle in an absolute statement, all right? So, so there's already an illogic to the, to the comment. But I say that to let you know, here's, you're going to find a softer, gentler atheist out there these days. I think they found the kind of the hardcore in-your-face wasn't getting a whole lot of converts. So let's soften this up, all right? Let, let's, let's appeal then to the spiritual nature of most people in the world. And let's say, all right, well, we believe that the evidence is suggesting to us that there is no God, but we're not, just, we're not stating that's an absolute truth. So that's just making you aware of how an atheist is going to define his atheism. It's a parlor trick. All right? it's, it's a bait-and-switch idea of how to talk about it that's really unfair, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. All right? uh, so keep that in mind. As you talk about, if, you, if you talk to an atheist today, you might, you might run into this. Where they're going to make comments like that. I, I, I don't believe there's a God, but I'm not going to say that with absolute certainty. Well, that seems like a pretty big gamble, right? Somebody's taking. they're going to say with absolute, with absolute certainty. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's absolute. All right, so then how do we talk to them? Well, let's, let's go into the second part then of your outline. Uh, here, here are some, I didn't know any of the word for it, some advice on talking to atheists. This, the rest of this is going to be very different, all right? Uh, and we'll, we'll get to a couple of them tonight, uh, and then finish, finish the rest up later. Some of this is, comes out of my own experience, and it's quite possible many of you, some of you have had greater involvement with atheist. It's quite possible some of you have come out of it. I, I don't know. I know we do have some folks in our church who came, who came out of a place of atheism, and their journey took them from atheism then all the way to to biblical faith, Um. But this, So this, some of this is, you know, coming from what is called my presuppositional approach, right? What we've been talking about, presuppositional apologetics. How do, we, how do we answer the fool according to his folly, but then not answer the fool according to his folly? So here are the tips to be able to do that. Number one, prepare for confrontation. Prepare for confrontation. What I mean by that is not that you've got to go find all these books or scour the internet, though you could do some of that. What I mean is, if you get into a conversation and the individual expresses some form of atheism to you, then, then buckle up if you want to get in this conversation. Because they're going to be ready. They love a debate. My experience is, is that most, most atheists, when they come across a Christian who wants to evangelize them, they'll put the gloves on. Alright, they are, they are ready to go. Alright, let's do this. Round one. And let's come out swinging. I'm not suggesting they're all going to be angry when I say prepare for confrontation. But what, what I mean is they, they are going to want to debate. Most of them that I know love to debate. Interestingly enough, those statistics I mentioned to you, that the, that the majority are, are like young males, I've never, not that they're not out there, but I've never had a conversation with a female atheist. My conversations have only ever been young to middle-aged men. It's all it's ever been. I've also never had a conversation with an 80-year-old atheist. They do exist. I'm just saying my, t- my anecdotes uh, are only going to come from, these, from this particular subset of the American culture. And my guess is most of these guys are ready to debate anything you bring up with them. Not just atheism. But I can tell you, if you're going to get into a conversation with an atheist, be ready. And I say that because here's what they're going to try and do. Here's then my encouragement in this don't go down the rabbit hole with them. That's what they're going to try and do. They're going to want to try and take you round and round and round. They're going to want to ask you where Cain got his wife from. They're going to want to ask you, they're going to tell you to defend God's actions in telling Joshua to kill everybody in Canaan. All right. These are the kinds of things that they're going to ask you. They're going to ask you if you've ever known of anybody else other than Jesus who came out of the grave never to die again. This is, these are the kind of things they're going to want to get into. All right. Prove to me that it's possible for a dead man to be raised to life. Prove to me that they're going to try and take you around. Your job as the evangelist is to keep coming back to the gospel. So don't lose sight of that. Keep coming back to the gospel. So just prepare for that. And again, I I don't mean that you got to go listen to debates and be ready to debate the atheist. You, you're welcome to. But again, my experience is most of them enjoy it. Number two, resist traditional arguments. I say for God, I mean for the existence of God. All right, so th- this is kind of where the debate happens, right? You get an atheist, and the atheist then Pounces. What evidence do you have God exists? Show me. Now, I know what everybody here in this room is thinking about this question. Because every one of you here, and this is actually the third point, but every one of you here are believers in Jesus Christ. You have redeemed minds. You understand and know the truth. You have the Spirit of God in you. So what are you thinking when you hear the question? Prove to me that God exists. You're thinking, duh. Don't say that, all right? But, I mean, you're thinking that. Duh, look around. What do you, what do you mean? Prove that God exists. Look Look around you. Can't you tell? Doesn't, doesn't creation give evidence of a designer? Now, here are what I mean by the traditional arguments for the existence of God. The argument from design and the argument from... The greatest being that exists. If you want fancy words, these are called the cosmological and teleological arguments for the existence of God. Don't you love knowing that stuff? All right, you say, Pastor, you're going to have to spell it. I can't, all right, but I can say it to you, all right? These are traditional arguments, and here's what they center around. The idea is, okay, you're asking me, prove that God exists. I'm going to point you to evidence of design. It's cosmological. I'm going to show you that God is the artist who has signed the canvas of creation. I'm going to point out to you evidences that God exists by pointing out to you evidence that there is a Maker. Or, I'm, we're, going to, we're going to philosophically wrangle this to its necessary end. I can tell you that I exist because my parents exist. My parents exist because... Their parents exist. Right? And you're going to eventually go down that line until you get to the one who's responsible for making it all. The argument goes something like this. Eventually you get to that one, and this is a paraphrase of a traditional philosophical argument, the the one about whom no greater thought can be thought. It's a weird way to put it, but what it means is you philosophically work this thing backwards and eventually you get to a creator. The end of the game is to get to a creator. The reason I say resist these arguments, not because I deny them, it's because every atheist out there is ready to shoot shotgun full of buckshot into those arguments. They've heard it a thousand times. They've heard the cosmological argument a thousand times. They've been to conferences and on websites and they've listened to webcasts and podcasts and debates saying how you get around those arguments. Now, here's, here's the, the real reason why I would resist indulging in that question. If he asks, what are the evidences that God exists? You know what the answer is? You're, okay, you can write this one down. Here's the answer. Here's, here's how I know God exists. The Bible says it he may very well come close to having his brain explode when you say it, all right? He's going he's to find that utterly ridiculous. Doesn't matter to me. Doesn't matter. Because I'm not going to answer the fool in his folly. I'm, we are not on a level playing field here. I'm not going to be forced to have his debate. So that's why I'm not going to pull out the cosmological argument. That's why I'm not going to pull out the teleological argument. Even though I may have them in my arsenal, I'm not going to pull those out as a way now to debate the idea that we can either prove or not prove that God exists. The existence of God is a presupposition. It's a biblical presupposition. The Bible never proves God's existence, does it? I mean, the Bible does have some statements that give evidence to it, right? Psalm 19 talks about creation as giving evidence to the existence of God. But Romans chapter 1 says, even though there is this revelation of God out there that's accessible to everybody, the atheist suppresses it in unrighteousness. So, engaging in arguments where he's you know, I'm, I'm now responsible, I'm put on the defensive to give evidence for God's existence. When I have conversations with atheists, especially now, this is the track that I take. We're not talking about these things. I'm telling you, for your own good, that God exists. Because whether you submit to the Bible or not, the Bible is the authority of God over you. And you are accountable to it. That's it. Alright? That's, that's, that's the way we're going to have this conversation. So, I, so, understand those traditional arguments probably aren't going to work. And so then this leads to number three. We'll, we'll finish up with this one and, and pick up later. So number three then, remember the lostness of the atheist. Remember the lostness of the atheist. The other side to this, again, the, the atheist though, atheists can be really, really smart... They are still dead in their trespasses and sin. Their minds are darkened by their sin. The folly in which they engage is that they intentionally ignore the truth. It's an intentional act on their part because they don't want to be accountable to the Word of God. They only want to be accountable to themselves. This is the person that you're talking to. The atheist, the one intellectual capacity they do not possess is the capacity to pass judgment on evidence for God's existence. They don't have the intellectual capacity to do this. I don't mean they're not smart enough. I mean because of the brokenness of their mind, they are not willing to see evidence. We'll talk about this next time. But I had one atheist who, I mean, he gave me the most honest answer anyone ever has when I asked him, what kind of evidence would satisfy you? And he said, First, he said, no one's ever asked me that question. Then I said, so if God spoke to you from heaven, would that be sufficient? Here's what he said. No, I'd explain it away as something else. Right. That's exactly right. He's exactly right. He's at least honest in his brokenness, all right? So, this, this is who you're talking to. You're talking to somebody who's lost. They're, they're rebels against God, and they love their rebellion. They love their sin. They love themselves. They love their own mind. They love their own intellect. So, understand that that is who you're talking to. I will also warn you here. I, I have run into some who at least sound like they're knowledgeable about the Bible. Many of them come from what they claim to be Christian backgrounds. Now, any of them I've ever had, obviously if they've come to the place of atheism, then they were not genuinely saved. All right, So so they, they may have some Bible knowledge, but I can tell you this, they absolutely surf atheist websites, they absolutely study this stuff, and they will parrot stuff that they have heard. And it's going to sound like they know stuff about the Bible. Let me encourage you, though. You may not have any idea about the thing they're talking about in the Bible, but you as a believer know infinitely more about the Bible than they ever could. Right off the bat. Because the Word of God dwells in you. The Word of God dwells in you. Dwells in you by virtue of the Spirit giving you life. So I say all of that just as a reminder to you When you are in a conversation, you are in a position of privilege over the atheist. You and an atheist are not on even ground. This is not a fair fight. You've already won the debate. I'm not saying they'll believe it. I just mean you come from a place of knowledge they do not possess. So that's, that's part of what I think the proverb is getting at. I'm not going to come down to the level of the atheist. I don't have to debate on his level. I have an insight here that he doesn't. And it's, it's, not because I'm all that, it's not because I'm better than the atheist. I've been saved. It is God's grace that has allowed me then to know what I know, for you to know what you know. And I say that because there is no one who can make you feel smaller than an atheist. Listen to me, Christian. An atheist will try to make you feel small and uninformed and unintellectual. They absolutely will try and make you feel that way. In your own mind and heart, here's what you tell yourself. <laughs> tell yourself, you are the one who is redeemed. You have the Word of God. You have the Spirit of God. They are broken and dead in their trespasses and sin. And you need to remind yourself of that because your task in this is motivated by compassion. You should be motivated by compassion. And that may be hard to do with an atheist. Because they can get really snarky. You think I can get snarky? Hmm. All right, so they can get really snarky. And they, they, they can want to go round and round and round. So remember the lostness. You are in a better position than they are. You have a better mind than they do. You are in a position... Of privilege. All right, so here's what we're going to do next time. Next time, we're going to get into some more specifics. All right, the rest of these points, uh, you hold on to this outline, but if I decide to add to it between now and then, I will, uh, and, and I'll just pass those out then accordingly. Uh, but we'll get into then into more specifics about how you then. So I don't want to answer the fool and his folly, and that I'm not going to come down to his level and debate on his terms, but I do want to answer the fool and his folly, and that I want to challenge his worldview. And presuppositional apologetics is the best way to do that. There, there are a host of issues that we are going to address that give you the upper hand in the conversation. As a way to, Because here's what you're trying to do. You want to steer it away from his rabbit hole and you want to steer it toward the cross and the resurrection. So we're going to talk about then some tips and strategies for doing that. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for gathering your people. We thank you for time in your word. We thank you for so great a salvation. We thank You for the redemption that is made available to us in Christ Jesus, and then for minds that have now uh, awakened to the truth. We thank You for the Spirit as the one who illuminates Your Word, gives us understanding of Your Word. We pray, God, You would continue to prepare us as instruments in Your hand to be effective witnesses for the sake of the gospel. We thank You for the week that lays out before us, we we enter into it by faith, trusting you and your sovereignty, recognizing our responsibility, committing ourselves to living it all for your glory. Use us as you see fit and all for the sake of your kingdom's work. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.